Well, amen. Would you turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 3? And I know um, Daniel did a great job of reading, but I'd like for us to read it again, again, just to have it there in the forefront of our minds as we walk through the passage. So if you would, turn to Jonah 3 and stand with me in the honor of God's Word and the reading of it. Let's read it together again. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them all call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you for this, your word. And we pray, Father, as we do every week, that you would use it for your glory, for our good. That you would bend our wills to it. And that we might be different as we leave. Father, we desire to see more fully of of you and your mercy and grace. And we desire to see Jesus. So may we see Him in these moments. It's in His name we we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Some of you play golf, so you know what a mulligan is. Uh, Some of you uh, have played baseball, so you know what it's like to have two strikes and hit, hit a foul ball and maybe hit two or three in a row. Many of you play video games, and so you know you like the fact that you get three to five uh, lives in some of those games, right? Um, some of you have received only a warning for speeding or a rolling stop, as we discussed at my house last night. Um, a lot of people that are in some type of recording, either audio or video, they like retakes. And they like, they like a, a, again, a second chance. Uh, many of us like... New days of the year. We like January 1st. Others of us like uh, the first day of the month or maybe the first day of the week or some of us just like the next morning, right? We all, no matter what it looks like, like second chances. We like do-overs. We like opportunities to do things again. Those things that we may not have done at, at first or those things that we didn't do, we did, but we didn't do well and we want to do them over again. And sometimes our second chances uh, simply benefit us and our own consciences 
And sometimes those second chances make up for or atone for a mistake we've made with somebody else. And they not only benefit us, but they benefit others. In some cases, the second chances that we receive are just part of the natural part of the day or the week or just how things go or naturally play out over time. But in most cases, second chances are opportunities that we're given by someone else because of their benevolence. They, they, out of the goodness of their own heart, give us another chance, give us another attempt or another try. And in our circles within the church, a lot of times we simply define that as grace. Can you give me, we even ask for it, can you just give me a little grace? Or we explain to somebody else, they gave me grace. And of course, uh, as we'll see tonight, as we've read now twice This grace, these second chances are perfectly illustrated in Jonah chapter 3. We see the grace that God grants in the second chance that he gives both Jonah and Nineveh. So we see grace extended. We'll also see obedience and repentance exhibited. And then thirdly, thirdly, we will see forgiveness expressed. So grace extended, obedience expressed. Um, and repentance exhibited and forgiveness expressed. Let's start first with the grace extended. And it's very obvious, as I was mentioning to the children there, right in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Right? He gets a do-over. The word of the Lord had come to him in chapter 1. And now it comes again in chapter 2. Despite his disobedience, despite his defiance, the Lord speaks again. He gives him another try. Jonah hadn't simply ignored the, the, the Lord. Remember, he defiantly went in another direction. He went as he was wanting to go as far as he thought he possibly could so that he wouldn't have to do what the Lord had asked him. And now in chapter three, we read the phrase that the Lord asks him a second time. And, and it was, as we read that, we don't hear a sign of any type of condemnation. We don't hear a sign of any disgust. There's no sarcasm in his voice. There's no bad inflection that's a part of this. Um, he could have communicated at some point some type of disdain or doubt. As many of us might do when we give somebody else a second chance. Sometimes we might, out of the goodness of our own heart, give someone a second chance. Yet, this just the, the tone of our voice suggests that we really don't want to do it. Or that we want them to feel really special because we are. And God doesn't do that. He clearly and matter-of-factly says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and speak out against it. And it's very similar to what we read in chapter 1, but there is an omission and an addition. Uh, the omission is very simple. In, in chapter 1, he explains to Jonah why he is to speak against it. He explains about the evil within the city, and he doesn't do that here in chapter 3. And then the addition is, he goes a step farther and he says, I want you to go to this great city, call out against it. And then he qualifies it, the message that I tell you. The message that I tell you, the calling out wasn't to be something that Jonah just made up. It wasn't to be something that he felt like that um, that he thought would be good considering the circumstances. Uh, It wasn't to be his reflections upon what the Lord said. It wasn't supposed to be um, some sort of personal soapbox or a list of grievances that Jonah might have had either with Nineveh or just about life. He wasn't to give some anecdotal quips about uh, what he had heard the Lord say. And as they came to mind, he wanted to share them. 
He specifically was to say and speak what the Lord wanted him to speak as he wanted him to speak it. It was the word of the Lord and nothing but the word of the Lord. Now, as far as the Ninevites are concerned, their second chance comes. And it's a little less obvious. The grace that's extended is a little different. For the sake of time, I'm going to spare you the details of how the arguments for and against and how we, we know that he went to the middle of the city to speak because there's arguments in regards to how big was the actual city and, and what was etiquette for that, that time and place about how, how far or who you needed to talk to before you actually made public announcements and things like that. But he does go to the center and he begins to speak the message. And the message was, again, very clear. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And at first glance, or really at any glance, it does look like a message of judgment. Because it is. It's very obviously a message of judgment. But even though it's judgment, there's also it's also a very gracious statement. And I think it's gracious for a couple of reasons. One, and very clearly he says he's warning them at... I mean, it's grace that he's warning them at all and that he's given them 40 days. Uh, Sodom didn't get that kind of warning. So it's gracious. But also, it's very interesting that the word overthrown in both Hebrew uh, and Assyrian had a double meaning. And so it could have been translated in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. But it also could be translated in 40 days, Nineveh will have a change of heart. So those that would have heard the message would have heard that that double meaning within that word and probably would have taking all that together would would hear that God is is giving them a message of impending judgment if they don't change, but also saying to them that he will do something differently if they do repent. So it's a message of judgment and of grace. So he grants both Nineveh and Jonah a second chance and Jonah and Nineveh take advantage of that second chance and we see that in how they respond and and it's a little more obvious uh, in how they respond first Jonah responds with obedience remember his repentance began on his way down to the bottom of the ocean and it continued while he was in the inside the fish and now as he is on dry land that repentance is resulting in obedience he responds And so this time, rather than arise and flee and go to Tarshish, he arises and he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So now the Lord speaks again and he says, I'm going to obey. He said what the Lord wanted him to say, though it was going to be difficult, though he really didn't want to do that. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. He decides to go anyway, despite what the Ninevites had done, how he felt about him and the message he was to deliver. And we read again twice that hearing the message, the Ninevites respond with repentance. And that repentance is immediate. And it's also and it's also biblical. And what I mean by that is their repentance includes those the, the three elements that go along with biblical repentance. Uh, look at those with me first in verse five. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he makes his proclamation. So what we see is we we actually see an evidence of mourning of sin. 
Uh, this idea of uh, fasting and sackcloth and ashes are all signs of that mourning of sin. It shows signs of penitence and lament and humiliation and grief and self-denial. And that description of the greatest and the least and the king and the nobles and the animals really is a way of describing that this is an all-encompassing. That The mourning is widespread. It's citywide. Uh, one commentator was interesting, even said that withholding food and water from animals would have caused them to, um, to increase their moaning and their crying. The intensity would have been even louder and thus speaking of the seriousness of this repentance. Secondly, there's also we see a, a turning from sin. In verse 8, it says, let everyone turn from his evil. This is the king. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. True repentance involves a change of mind. Right? It involves uh, an agreement with God that sin is sin. There's a repudiation of sin. And, and that sin leads to changing of behavior, which is fruit of Repentance. And of course, uh, hand in hand with that is the third element, which is a turning to God in faith. They're two sides of the same coin. So we have them turning from their evil and also the king says, and let them call out mightily to their God. So they're doing both. They're turning from their sin, turning toward God. And, and that agreement, I'm agreeing with God that that is sin and I'm turning away from that. And I, I want to follow God in faith and I'm going to trust him for what he has said. But notice what the king says. He says, who knows? Right? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What, what's the king doing? What's he admitting? He's admitting that he's calling, he's calling the city to repentance. To mourn their sin, to turn from their evil and to turn toward God. But he's also expressing the truth that he knows that, that repentance in and of itself isn't meritorious. What I mean by that is that it's not, God is not looking on their repentance and how well they repent. And the king is not even trusting that, that God is going to see how well they repent to offer his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. The king is admitting that they ultimately are in the hands of God. And before we move on, I also want us to look back at verse 5 because we have to ask ourselves for... For just a minute, because we've been talking about how evil the Ninevites are, how bloodthirsty they are and the atrocities that they've committed. And we think, how would they have, how would such a, a horrible city come to this place where they would repent? And then verse 5, it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. Repentance always begins at that point of believing God. And believing God always comes through the ministry of the Spirit and His Word. And so Jonah was told what? Jonah said, or God says, Jonah, you go and preach the, preach the Word that I have given you. He goes and preaches that Word. Right? And the ministry of the Word and Spirit takes over. They come and believe God because of what, he, what Jonah has said. And that believing uh, in turn leads to repentance. Jonah's warning included judgment, but it included mercy. They understood that, and so they trusted that message, and they threw themselves upon the mercy of God. Now, while the king may not have been sure what the Lord would do, the Lord did exactly what he purposed to do and what was according to his character. 
There are those that are going to say, well, in the King James it says repented, so God changed his mind. The better is the word that we read here in the ESV and in other translations, it's the word relented. Because God does what was according to his character. He, God is, is unchangeable. God is, is not sitting back and reacting to or responding to our actions or our choices as his creation. He wasn't sitting back waiting to see what they would do before he would do it. Uh, he wasn't. He was simply expressing to them what he would do if they if they would uh, if they didn't repent. And and we know from other places in Scripture, and we even know from his statement here that if they did repent, he would do something else. So he wasn't working on the fly. As Hugh Martin said, it was wicked, violent, unrighteous, atheistical, proud, and luxurious Nineveh, which God had threatened to destroy. A city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement and appealing as lowly suppliants to his commiseration. A Nineveh like that, he had never threatened. That Nineveh he visited not with ruin. He had never said he would. So rather than... Speak about his changeableness. Really what what God does speaks or exposes him as a God who does not change and who is consistent regarding judgment of sin and responding with to repentance with grace, mercy and forgiveness. He acted within his character. Now, we just blew right through that, right? And there there were places that we could have maybe gone into a little more depth. But I'd like to spend the rest of the time that we have to to look at several points of application. And there are five of them. And well, there are five of them. Uh, First is this. I think as we read through Jonah three and really as we've read through the first three chapters that we see that no one is out of the reach of God's grace. No one is out of the reach of God's grace, whether we look at Jonah and his complete disobedience and defiance Or if we look at Nineveh and the atrocities that they had committed, both experienced the grace and mercy of God. You've heard me say many times, there isn't a sin so great that can't be forgiven. But there's also never been a sin so small that doesn't need to be forgiven. And so we need to understand, we need to hear tonight from His Word and understand the truth that none of us is beyond the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. Regardless of who we are, regardless of what we've done. Secondly, the proclamation of the gospel should be free and indiscriminate. For us as a church, as we think about moving into our 10th month and and the opportunities that we have, whether it be at Farmer's Market or throughout our community, we need to remember that the communication of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel should be free and indiscriminate. It doesn't matter who somebody is or what they've done. And as we'll see next week, the, the point that Jonah, we haven't really seen this yet. If you've read the end of Jonah, you know, but I've, I've tried to keep this back. But as we, as we read through chapter 4, you realize that Jonah is wrestling with this exact thing. This is really what's underlying his issue. Because Jonah is at this point of where he believes that there, in some way, that there are those who are worthy of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and others who aren't. And we'll explore that more next week. But the reality is that no one is worthy of salvation. None of us deserve it. 
But the gospel has come freely and indiscriminately to you and to me. And we should take that gospel and do the same thing. Salvation is for those regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, young or old. Regardless of how much melanin is in their skin, their background, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status or sin. The gospel is to be proclaimed. Sin knows no bounds. Salvation doesn't either. So let's be indiscriminate and free of our proclamation. Thirdly, evangelism must include the announcement of judgment. And I know this makes us a little uncomfortable. I I remember even hearing Robert Schuller one time back when the Crystal Cathedral was, um, I guess, supposedly Protestant before it became a Catholic church. And Robert Schuller said one time, I don't like sharing, uh, I don't like speaking of sin to the people that are in my congregation because I don't want to push them away from salvation. Richard Phillips said, this is where the grace of the gospel properly begins. With warnings of God's certain judgment on sin. He said, there is always a great danger that Christians would be so concerned to win over their hearers that they would withhold the unpleasant reality of judgment for which the gospel is the answer. And that is the key. If we don't express the sin and judgment that we all face, what is there to be saved from? If they don't understand sin and judgment, if we didn't understand sin and judgment, would we truly understand salvation? Sin and judgment are to be part of that proclamation. And Mr. Phillips goes on, he says, if God's grace in Nineveh began with the law, where was the gospel? The answer is that Jonah himself presented the gospel. He was a living sermon on the grace of God that brings life to the dead and delivers sinners from just condemnation. And we say, well, wait a minute, how, do, how is that possible? Because Jonah was just simply to, to speak the word of the Lord. How did they know the story of Jonah? And the answer is we don't know. And we don't need to be afraid to say that. But what we do know is what Jesus said in our New Testament reading tonight. Jesus himself said that Jonah was a sign for the Ninevites. So somehow, some way, they had heard what happened to Jonah. And he had become a sign for them. And fourthly, God will use sin and discipline and grace for his glory and our good, even to equip us for his purposes. Jonah had been called to go to Nineveh and refused. And the Lord was gracious. The Lord disciplined him. The Lord brought him back to a place where he could be used. And Jonah's sin did not thwart the will of the Lord. Actually, Jonah's sin became an avenue through which the Lord could equip him by granting him grace to fulfill maybe even better than he could have uh, than, than earlier. Why? Because Jonah understood better the grace of God. Having experienced God's grace, he was now ready to extend God's grace because he was an example of God's grace. And the same is true for you and me. And that's why we said in, back in Ephesians 2, remember we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God not only has restored us to right standing before him, but God has also restored us back to our purposefulness and our usefulness. Our, our, our purpose has been salvaged. And we are now able to use it for his glory. Grace has been extended to us. We're to express it. And we can better express that. Having been through what we've been through. Being able to to share our story in light of the gospel. Not share our story in lieu of the gospel. Share the gospel 
express how it has affected us, express how we have been restored to usefulness. And then finally is this, and the kids, this is, this is where we left off a little earlier, okay? While God did uh, offer Jonah and Nineveh a second chance, I, I don't want us to leave here thinking that God is simply a God of second chances. Because God, or, or grace, is more than a second chance. And God is more than a God of second chances. He's actually, and I express this, he's more, as I prayed, he is actually more than a God of infinite chances. And why do I say that? If we look merely at Jonah, or the fact that Jonah and Nineveh received a second chance, and that they made good on that chance, as I said to them, I think we could miss the what makes grace so amazing. And I say that because, as we'll learn next week, Jonah may have obeyed, But he really had issues going on in his heart. And we also know, as we read further in the Old Testament, that Nineveh, within a hundred years or just beyond a hundred years, is going to be judged and they are actually going to be wiped out. And what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that it doesn't matter how many chances we get. There are never enough chances for us to make ourselves perfect before a holy God. It's just not going to happen. There aren't enough chances for you and for me to justify ourselves or earn our salvation or keep our salvation. Saving and maintaining our salvation by ourselves and by our own work and by our own merit is impossible. So if God was merely a God of second chances, it could be said that he was cruel because it would mean that all he was doing was setting setting us up for failure. Giving us just another chance to do what we can and never could do. So the reality is, the good news is, that this story doesn't point us, or actually the point, the story points us to something greater than a God of second chances. The story points us to a God of grace and mercy. Because the good news, the good news isn't that if we trust in Christ, we will and are, we will be and are forgiven. And therefore the slate is wiped clean so that we get an opportunity to make a fresh start and do what we didn't do right the first time. That's not good news. Because, why? We have to do that perfectly. In other words, the slate isn't just wiped clean and we don't wake up uh, the next day with the ability to redeem ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. Period. The good news is that if we trust in Christ and we're forgiven of our sins, our slate is wiped clean of our sins. But after that, We are imputed with, our slate is then filled with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is His forgiveness and His work on our behalf that actually redeems us. And so rather than this story to point us to to be mindful of our second chances, 
This story should point us not to our second chances, but to our perfect substitute who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who lived, died, was buried, and rose again for sinners like us. And, and so we should, it should be God's kindness and grace and his second and third and fourth chances he offers to always and in every way should bring us to repentance and point us not to ourselves and our effort, but should point us to Jesus and his effort on our behalf. It shouldn't point us to, wow, we get to try to do better next time. We get to be pointed to the Lord Jesus who worked fully and finally once and for all on our behalf. That is the good news of the gospel. And as I mentioned earlier in our New Testament reading, Jonah was a sign of the Ninevites, to the Ninevites. At some point, they had heard of his travails in the belly of the fish and the three days that it was there. And it may have played a part. It may have played a part in their believing God. Having, having heard judgment and, and even with the double meaning of the word, it may have pointed them to the grace of God. You know, just seeing him standing there and understanding and hearing what had happened. But notice, Jesus also said, something greater than Jonah is here. So even as we read this story... We don't read this story so that we might see Jonah and be like Jonah. We see this story not to look to Jonah, but to take Jesus' words and to look beyond. Because something that greater than Jonah is here. And who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, how much more should we look to the Lord Jesus who was killed, buried, rose and, and buried... Yeah, dead, buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven. How much more should we look to him than to Jonah? Because he is the one who saves. How much more should we look to him who who lived, died, and rose again in our place? That we might be forgiven. That we might be redeemed and justified and adopted and sanctified and glorified. Brothers and sisters, we read Jonah tonight and the call is to rest in Jesus. That's the good news. Let's pray together.